Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. This is the last week of our series on it, a series that we started the week after Easter so that we could revisit our core values here at Destiny Community Church. Our, our core values here, we call them the four D's of destiny, discovery, helping people discover a relationship with Christ, dependence, uh, teaching believers to depend on each other and build relationships that last for eternity, development, developing and growing in God's word, and finally direction, finding God's direction for your life and where he wants you to serve. The first week of this series, Pastor Andrew spoke about owning your faith He said there's a difference between a renter's mentality and an owner's mentality, and it's important for us to own our faith and not live off of borrowed faith. And then the second week of this series, Pastor Andrew challenged us to own our relationships. In our quest for unity, we must realize that the enemy is fighting against unity among the believers. And the proof of our relationship with Christ is how we love one another and how we extend grace to one another. So it's our responsibility within the body of Christ to preserve unity. And then last week, the old mean pastor returned, and I told you that nobody else can be responsible for your spiritual maturity but you. I said, don't blame me. Don't look at me for your spiritual growth and your spiritual maturity. At some point, you have to mature beyond spiritual milk and get on the meat of God's word. So own your maturity, own your spiritual growth and your development. So week one was about owning your faith. Week two, owning your relationships. Last week was about owning your maturity. And today on this final week, I want to talk to you on this subject. Own the fact that you don't own you. Own the fact that you don't own you. There was this married couple that went out to dinner to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. And on the way home, the wife looks over and she notices that her husband has a tear that is running from his eye down his cheek and and she asked him she says you know are you getting sentimental because we're celebrating 50 years of, of marriage together how wonderful that is and the husband looks at her and he says no he said I was thinking about that time before we got married when I was 18 you were 16 your father threatened me and said that if I didn't marry you he'd have me thrown in jail for 50 years he said tomorrow I would have been a free man Though I certainly do not feel like I am trapped by any means. You understand that, right? I do not feel trapped in my marriage. You get that. Everybody say amen. Amen. There was a time in my life when I was free to make decisions that affected just me and not my wife and not my kids. Um, Before I was in a relationship with with Mandy, before I was married, um, I was free to live a life focused on me. And after I said, I do, that changed. It changed drastically. And you know, from the outside looking in, our relationship with Christ seems foolish to the world out there. You know that, right? There's people that they just don't get it. They look at our lives and and they look, especially for those of us that we're here every week. They look at our lives and they think to themselves, what? What's wrong with these people? They don't get it. Why would we want to give up our time? Nobody's making any more time. Time is what it is. Time's running out. So why would people like us want to give up their time? Why would people like us want to give up their talent? Why would we want to waste our talent on an organization like this when we can be using our talents probably to make some money or to at least do something different that that in their eyes seems more meaningful? 
And then finally, that leads me to treasure. Why would we want to give up our treasure for the church? Why would we want to do that? And, and those of us that we've been around this thing for a while, we know it's because we are in a relationship with Jesus, and this causes us to realign our priorities. My priorities were realigned whenever I became a married man. When I became a father, it once again realigned my priorities. But I can tell you this, in serving in the kingdom of God and becoming a, a, a Christian and in relationship with Jesus Christ, it makes me realign my priorities. I figured out that there's four levels of engagement around a church. The first one is consumer-based engagement. Consumer-based says, I want you to do it for me. I want you to serve me. And I reluctantly include this as a level of engagement because it's basically unengaged. It's just when people just like to show up and watch the show. And so there's no real level of engagement there at all. The second level is compliant-based. I'll, I'll do it because I have to. I want to be compliant. I, I, want to, I, I do it only because I feel guilted into it. It's, it's obligatory. And, and so this is really the lowest level of engagement. The third is cooperative-based. Cooperative-based says, I'll do it because I should. These people know that they need to be involved. We've probably got people like this in our church. They need to be involved. They're just not excited about doing so. And then finally, the fourth is collaborative-based. Collaborative-based. And this says, I'll do it because I believe in what we're trying to accomplish. I believe in the goal. I believe in the vision. And this is the highest level of engagement. I'll do it because I want to, because I believe in the mission that we are out to accomplish. And I tell you, that collaborative-based involvement is, is a pastor's dream. A, a church like this is a pastor's dream. And let me say, a church like this, Destiny Community Church, it is a pastor's dream dream. I talk with pastors all the time and they have a hard time recruiting volunteers and getting people to cover ministry and they can't start new ministries in their church because nobody wants to do it or the same people are always doing it. And this church, it is a pastor's dream. It is full of people who are in a relationship with Jesus and they love to serve the body of Christ. The Bible uses numerous metaphors to describe our relationship with God. One of the most popular metaphors that the Bible uses is that we are his sheep and Jesus is our shepherd. Psalm 23 and 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then you get to John chapter 10 and verse 11 and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Another metaphor that the Bible uses is that we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. We're the bride, he's the bridegroom. Revelation 19 and 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Ephesians 5 and 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Another metaphor that the Bible uses is that we are the clay and he is the potter. Isaiah 64 and 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Now, these are some comforting metaphors, right? I mean, it feels good to know that he is our shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. That feels good. We get these warm fuzzies knowing that, that he's the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ and we're being prepared 
for our bridegroom. It's reassuring to know that we are clay in the potter's hands and that he is forming our lives. That's, that's, it's good for us to know that. But there's this one metaphor that the Bible uses that we're not as crazy about. And I know because it's a topic that we don't like to talk about as much, at least not in the depth that the Bible covers it. And it's the metaphor of us being servants. Servants. Sheep, yeah, I can get with that. Bride of Christ, that sounds great. Clay, mm, that's wonderful. Yeah, I want to be molded in his hands. But servant, what, what is that about? Why must I become a servant? Let's go to John chapter 12 in your, in your Bible. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, leading up to where, where we're going to read at verse 20. This is the last week of his earthly ministry, the last week of his life. Jesus has made his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, and he is met with great fanfare. People are lining the streets. There's a crowd that has gathered there, and they've been hearing other people talk about how Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The Bible tells us right here in John chapter 12 that the people that were there that were present when he raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, they, that they, they won't shut up about it. They keep talking about it. They're telling everyone. And so people are hearing this and they show up and they gather and they line the streets and they're waving palm branches and they're chanting and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You hear what they're saying, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're making a claim here that the Romans don't want to acknowledge. The Jews don't want to acknowledge this. They're claiming that Jesus Christ is the king of Israel. In Jerusalem, there are some Greeks that have gathered and they want to see Jesus. They want to have a conversation with Jesus. They've heard about him they want to have a conversation. So John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In 1915, the historic Church of the Open Door opened its doors in downtown Los Angeles. For 70 years, for 70 years, it was this landmark building on Hope Street with its neon signs that read, Jesus saves. They said from all the major interstates, you could read the neon signs that said, Jesus saves. It had an impressive 4,000-seat auditorium with a, a large main floor, a large balcony, and even a second balcony. Church of the Open Door had some of the greatest speakers and preachers fill its pulpit. And if you were privileged enough to stand at that pulpit and address that massive crowd, one might think that that would go to your head, that it would, it, it would inflate your ego. So to make sure that this did not happen, 
they attached a little plaque to the pulpit that only the speaker, whoever was talking to the crowd, only that person could read that little plaque. And on it were the words of John 12 and 21, a verse that we just read that said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Can you imagine being a, a pastor standing there week after week, addressing the large crowd that had gathered in that room? There's no doubt a church that size, it, it has the potential to mess up a pastor's ego, to inflate his head. But every week when you walk to the pulpit, you see John 12 and 21 that says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Reminding that pastor that those people are there for no other reason except to see Jesus. Church, I pray that God continues to, see, to, to send us people week after week that they simply just want to see Jesus. Let's don't ever get tired of that. At the moment we get too tired of, of seeing people that want to see Jesus is the moment that we need to shut the doors of this church. We need to shut it down. We need to go do something else because we've lost the vision of what true Christianity really is about. I want to continue week after week for God to, to send us people that, that just want to see Jesus. And, and the Greeks that had gathered in Jerusalem, they said these words to Philip. They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. This is a bold request. You have to understand that. Because after all, this crowd had just proclaimed that he was the king of Israel. They've said, this is the king of Israel. The ones that gathered to celebrate his triumphant entry into Jerusalem declared him king of Israel. He was the Jewish Messiah. They're the ones that are looking for a Messiah. How dare these Greeks, not Jews, these Greeks, how dare them request to see Jesus, especially during the final week, the last week of his earthly ministry. How dare them? Maybe they came to Philip because maybe Philip had a, a reputation for wanting to reach beyond the bloodline of the Jews. We know that later on, this thing, it goes global. It includes Gentiles, those that are not Jews. But Philip, later on, we find out that he had a heart for the Samaritans, the half-Jews. And, and he would spend some significant amount of time there evangelizing to them, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And so maybe that's why they came to Philip. Maybe they came to Philip because they know that he has a heart to reach those that are not Jews. But Philip does not dare approach Jesus by himself with the request of these Greeks. Well, the Bible says that he recruits the help of Andrew to go with him because there's strength in numbers, right? And so you're going to approach the master, you're going to approach the rabbi and, and, and tell him that there's some Greeks, not Jews, Greeks that want to have a conversation with you. And so he recruits Andrew and they go and, and they tell Jesus of this particular request. There's some Greeks that want to have a conversation with you. And the response of Jesus is quite odd. Because he starts off the conversation by explaining to them that the time has come for him to be glorified. Now this is what they've been waiting for. Finally, after three years, finally, he's going to be glorified. King of Israel, king of the Jews. Now he's going to be glorified. But, but his definition 
of glorification and my definition of glorification are two different things. Because if, if I'm being glorified, here's, here's the way I picture it, okay? This is my definition of being glorified. If I was to be glorified, I expect that I'm going to be sitting on a big throne. And all of you are going to be wearing t-shirts with my face on it. Just like that. That's what glorification feels like to me. It, it, my definition of being glorified, it, it means that I'm popular with everybody. Like all of you like me forever. Like none of you will ever have a problem with me. You're all fans. You all like me and I am glorified. That's what my definition of being glorified means. But, but Jesus went a completely different direction because he defined glor glorify, being glorified as a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. That's how he describes being glorified. He describes being glorified that it involves someone losing their life and becoming a servant. Like they give up freedom and become a servant. That's his definition of being glorified and that this is the only way that you are able to bear much fruit. This is what Jesus says to them. I, I picture Philip and Andrew just going, whoa, there's just some Greeks outside that want to talk to you. That's, that's the only reason we came here. What is this about? This doesn't even make sense to us. Why? Why are you saying these words to us now? If you were to read the New Testament in its original text, you would probably be in awe by how different certain key words are compared to most English translations of the Bible, including the good old King James Version of the Bible. Now understand this. I have nothing against the King James Version of the Bible. I was raised on the King James Version of the Bible. Most of the scriptures that I've memorized and know by heart are the King James Version of the Bible. It's a wonderful translation of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Version, the New Living Translation, the English Standard Version, and the nearly inspired, the New International Version, and most English translations have found a way to sugarcoat something that has an absolutely critical element of truth. And we can't ignore this. But most translations, and probably the one that you have on your phone right now, or the ones that the, the Bible that you're holding in your hand, they, they, they've, they've missed something, and, and, and it is oh so critical for us. The word slave in the original New Testament, the word slave appears 130 times. Slave. That's, that's a bad word. I'm not even comfortable with that word. I don't even like saying the word. But the word slave in the original New Testament is said 130 times. You will find it once in the King James Version of the Bible. Only once. Why? I think it makes perfectly good sense. Why? It was being translated for King James I of England. If you do... In translating something for the king of England, you don't want to challenge the king of England with words like slave, especially when it's saying you must become a slave in the kingdom of God. The king would have you killed for something like that. In other translations, you may find it translated slave a few times, but usually it's referring to the actual slavery. When someone was actually bound by slavery, 
But whenever it is personalized and life applicable to us, the translators seem unwilling to translate it as slave. It's like this hesitation. They don't want to say the word slave. For example, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus said, no one in the original, he said, no one can be a slave to two masters. No one can be a slave to two masters. Most translations say, probably the one you have in your hand says, no man can serve two masters. Now, we know if we dig deep enough, they probably mean about the same thing. No one can be a slave to two masters. No one can serve two masters. But do you see how it just kind of makes the pill a little easier to swallow when you say serve? If I was to walk up here and say, listen, I love serving my wife. You're all like, oh, that is fantastic. But if I walk up here and I say, I am a slave to my wife, it has a different meaning, doesn't it? Y'all pray for me. I'm a slave to my wife. She worked me like a dog yesterday. And so in translating it to English to make it just a little bit easier for us to handle, they just take it and tweak it a little bit just to make King James a little bit happier with the translation and, and not as challenging. Let's just put in serve instead of slave. And I know, I know this is a touchy subject, but it is important for us to understand what Christ was really saying. He said, no one can be a slave to two masters. You're either going to serve one or you'll serve the other. You cannot ride the fence on this. No one can serve two masters. And time and time again, the Bible speaks of us as being slaves to Christ. Numerous times in the New Testament, Paul would, would start his letters and, and refer to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Translated, it, it should have been slave of Jesus Christ. And he would refer to himself. Unfortunately, in most of our lives, Jesus has too many other masters with whom he must compete with. Church, listen to me. Jesus is not willing to be one among many. He's told us this uh, from, from the beginning, uh, the law of the Bible. He's a jealous God. And he told us in the Ten Commandments, don't put any other gods before me. He wants to be the one and only Lord, the only master of your life. And no one can be a slave to two masters. Jesus as Lord means that Jesus is the one and only master of your life. That means he calls the shots and you don't make decisions in your life until you seek him in prayer because you want an answer from heaven before you make that decision. That's what it means to have a Lord over your life. Too many people, they just want a Savior. They don't want a Lord. Too many people want the blessings of being saved, but they don't want to submit to the Lordship of who Jesus Christ really is. But there's stuff that gets confusing in all of this. I have to admit, in preparation for this, I, I started scratching my head because I started going back to some of the songs that we used to sing. And there's this one old hymn that we used to sing when I was growing up. It, and it said this, it said, Once like a bird in prison I dwelt, No freedom from sorrow I felt, But Jesus came and listened to me, Glory to God, He set me free. Do you know it? If you know it, sing it with me. He set me free, yes, he set me free. 
He broke the bonds of prison for me. I'm glory bound my Jesus to see. Glory to God, He set me free. Okay, you didn't go to church with our choir director, Sister Margie Markham. When Margie Markham did this right here, she'd look at the band or she'd look up at the choir. That means we're going back into that chorus. We're going to sing it again. Are you ready? Join with me if you know it. He set me free, yes, he set me free. He broke the bonds of prison for me. I'm glory bound, my Jesus, to see. Glory to God, he set me free. You're so white. So white. That hand clap was so white. He set me free? Wait, that contradicts everything I'm telling you right now, right? He set me free? And then Jesus says in John 8 and 36, he said, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So what is it? Are we free? Are we slaves? What is it? What's the answer? And the answer is, yes. Yes, we are free. And yes, we are slaves. We are free from sin. How many of you today are thankful that you're free from sin? Amen? You're free from sin. When you invited Christ into your life and you said, I want you to be Lord of my life. I think we're forgetting what Lord means. I want you to be Lord of my life. You've given him command. You've given him dominion over the sin in your life. And so, yes, you are free from sin. And yes, we are slaves to Christ. But don't be misled by that term. Just because we're slaves to Christ, it doesn't mean that he is a harsh ruler over our lives. It doesn't mean that he's going to harm us. It doesn't mean that he's going to mistreat us. No, he's a great master. It's, it's a kingdom that you want to be a slave in. You want to serve in his kingdom. In our text in John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus said these words. I'll read it again. He said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. You hear what he says, right? He says, anyone who serves me, they're right there with me. And wherever I am, they're there serving with me. Because he led by example. Our Lord, our Master, led by example, becoming a servant, becoming a slave to the body of Christ. The very next chapter, the very same week, Jesus exemplified servanthood by washing the feet of his disciples. The most important man in the room leveraged his power to wash the feet of the disciples to become a servant. You know, some of us, we're too important for our own good. You know that, right? Some of us, we expect people to do all the work around us. Jesus said, that's not the way my kingdom works. No, I'll get down and I'll wash your feet. And he literally served us to death. That's how faithful he was to serving the body of Christ, even unto death. And he said, if you're following me, 
If you're with me, you too must be serving the body of Christ. Church, listen to me. It's a core value here. Direction, finding God's direction for your life and where he wants you to serve. This is something we want to help you with. We want to help you find how God wants you to serve in his kingdom. Because Jesus died for the church, the least that we can do is serve the church. Become slaves to each other. Try and just outserve one another. Because when, when a church tries to outserve one another, there is just love that is flowing freely. Try it in your home. Try and outserve your spouse. I promise you, it, love will flow freely through your home and it works in the body of Christ. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. That's talking about the body of Christ. We've all received a gift. There's some way, somehow, that we can serve each other. And, and, and we are commanded to serve one another. Listen to Galatians 6 and 10. It makes it very plain. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith especially to those who are part of the kingdom, part of the body of Christ. We are to serve each other. Why do some people have a hard time with this? Because they haven't bought in to Jesus being the master and the Lord of their lives. When he is Lord over your life, you understand you are now a servant. You are a slave in his kingdom. And you will want to serve his body. Maybe you're wondering how, when, where, how, how can I serve his church? How does this happen? In 1998, I met a man by the name of Bill Wilson. If you've been around ministry for very long, this is probably a familiar name as he, he started Metro Ministries in New York City. Started the largest sidewalk Sunday school, even today. Over 100,000 children are reached each week through his efforts. He was an amazing man. I met him in Daytona in 1998 when I first started off in ministry. And he said something at this conference that was profound. It, it, it changed the way I looked at ministry. And, and, and to be honest with you, it's probably one of the, the statements that was made to me early on in ministry that, that established the way that I would do ministry. And these life-changing words that he said, he said, being called is not always about hearing the audible voice of God. He says, as a matter of fact, most of you have never heard the audible voice of God. He said, being called is simply seeing a need and becoming the answer to that need. What if that's what being called is all about? I get so tired of hearing pastors talk about God called me. Yes, God called me. But I simply saw a need. And I just answered that need. What if you stay in close proximity to the church to where when a need arises, you say, This is my opportunity. I'm called to meet that need. I'm convinced we don't decide God's direction for our lives, we discover God's direction for our lives. You stick around, you'll figure out where he wants you to serve. 
There's a story that has been told from Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. It's about a northerner who went to a slave auction and he purchased a young slave girl. As they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and and he told her these two words. He said, you're free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? He said, yes. And to say whatever I want to say? He said, yeah, you can say whatever you want to say. And to be whatever I want to be? Yep. And to go wherever I want to go? He said, yes, you're free. Go wherever you would like to go. And she looked at him. She said, well, then I want to go with you. That's our response to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master. He looked at us and said, you're free. No longer are you bound by the chains of sin. You're free. Our response to that should be, Lord, then I'll follow you. I can go wherever I want to, yes. Then, Lord, I just want to follow you. Listen to his words again. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. I'm free, yes. Then I want to be with you, Jesus. And he thought enough about this body to die for it. Let's serve it. Let's serve this body. I've thought about many different ways to end this series. It, it would be appropriate probably if we would have had like a job fair. And all of the different ministries that I we have in our church that you could just walk up to tables and sign up and and right now under this heavy conviction you probably would but here's what I figured out it doesn't last until a person falls in love with the body of Christ they don't see the need for serving in the body of Christ it's my job to encourage you and to remind you of why we do what we do. The Bible says we are to encourage each other even more, even more as the day of the Lord approaches. The day of the Lord, the Master, under whom we serve, following in His footsteps, He served the body of Christ. We have to be right there with Him, serving the body of Christ. One of the hardest teams for us to recruit in our church is the set up and tear down team some of them are in the room right now waiting on you to get up so they can put the chairs up and put the tables out but every Sunday there's people that they have to to put all these chairs out and the signage and everything get everything ready for church and they're here at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings putting all that out then there's faithful ones that they stay afterwards to turn this back into a school simply so that we can have church We've had people that under guilt 
I said, man, I need, I need to pull my weight. And honestly, I thought about it. I thought, man, today I could probably, after a message like this, I could recruit a bunch of people. It would probably ride that out until we're in our new church, couldn't we? Because that's a hard team, man. There's some of them that they just, they're just faithful. I'm looking at a couple of them right now. They're just faithful. But there's people that come and go on that team, and, and I get it because it, it can burn you out. But all of our teams, all the different areas of ministry where people can be involved in, if you don't have a passion and a burden to serve the body of Christ, it won't last. And so I think the best way to close this series is for us to pray, God, give me a heart for your church. Give me a heart to serve the people of God. Give me the master's heart. Give me the master's heart. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.